Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We come before you this morning asking and seeking for your mercy. We come before you this morning asking and seeking for understanding. There is much, Lord, in our our lives as followers and disciples of you that we often do not understand. We pray that this morning you would bring clarity to much of the things that we we sometimes struggle to accept. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. We pray that you would give us a humility as some of the things that we hear this morning may be difficult for us to accept. But let us accept them because they are found in your holy, perfect word. God, I do decrease that you may increase. I become less so that you, you always, I pray, God, become more. Let your word be used this morning to break the shackles off of hearts that are bound by sin. Let it be done so in the power and spirit of your holy word. We glorify you and praise you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I say once again, and if I have not said it, good morning. Thank you for joining us on this Lord's Day as we resume our exposition of the Gospel of John. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. John chapter 15. Verse 18. This is God's word. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. They will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, whom who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, verse 1 through 4. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. 
And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is God's word. Those who have ears to hear are blessed to hear God's word. You may be seated this morning. As we begin, let us be reminded of the, the context in which these words are spoken. They come after the washing of the disciples' feet. Jesus then exposes to the company that is with him that there is a traitor in their midst, Judas Iscariot. The sheep's mask has been removed from Judas, and Judas has been revealed as the wolf that he truly is. Judas then has gone out into the Judean night sent by Jesus to do what he purposed in his heart to do, but what was preordained by God for him to do. That is, to betray the Son of God to the religious leaders. Our Lord Jesus Christ is now alone with his true disciples, and he begins to minister comfort to them. He is, if you will, ministering to them a, a paracletic ministry. That is to say, he is ministering the encouragement and comfort of God to these men who are becoming increasingly bereaved by the, the thought, the troubling fact that their master is going away. Of course, our Lord is bringing these men into a place of comfort because he's helping them to get comfortable with the comforter, the paraclete. The Holy Spirit, who will come as their comforter and helper. And he is and is always going to be our ever-present help, the Holy Spirit. In the verses of this chapter, Jesus is speaking to his disciples as branches who have been united to Christ, the true vine. Jesus said in John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask in my name, ask my father, the father in my name, he may give it to you. As we discussed, these men were specifically chosen by Christ to be light bearers. These men were to hold up the light of the gospel, of the Lord Jesus Christ. These men were to be farmers and they were to go into the world and plant the seed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, life would grow in dry valleys. And the fruit that would grow from this would be the fruit of new disciples, new believers who would come to trust in Christ, and their fruit would remain. Why? Because they, just like the disciples, were chosen by Christ to follow Him. In this great mission... Jesus says they could ask anything in relation to that mission. And God would answer the mission of making the gospel known. And now. After saying all of these things, the Lord Jesus Christ seeks to prepare his disciples by warning them of the dangers and difficulties and the hatred that they will encounter. Why? Because they are carrying the torch of the gospel and because they bear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's warning them 
And it is important to note that Jesus is speaking particularly to these disciples. These disciples have a particular role in the life of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. These men have a unique redemptive historical significance because they will soon experience all the things that Christ is speaking to them about right now. They will soon experience being put to death. They will soon experience being exiled to islands. And he is warning them. Nevertheless, what Jesus says to these disciples concerning the difficulties that they will experience, he says to these disciples, listen, and beyond. He says to these disciples concerning the difficulties that they will face, the hatred that will soon come their way. He says to those disciples and beyond, you and I. The truths that Christ relates to his disciples are truths that apply to all who claim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus is pressing on his disciples that they cannot in any way escape the hatred that will come by virtue of their belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. They will not be able to escape it. The Lord Jesus Christ was the one who was preeminently despised and rejected. I have said this saying before, he is the prototypical man of faith. What do I mean? I mean this. He is the pattern after which all true believers are patterned. He is the prototype. He is the original. When the Holy Spirit, or what the Holy Spirit first produced in Christ... He comes then to all who have repented and believed and produces in them what was first produced in Christ. The Holy Spirit has a ministry of replication. He is presently replicating the image of Christ in all of us who claim and call on the name of Christ. He says in Galatians 4.19, till Christ be formed in you. What does he mean or what does that mean for us? Simply, it means this. Just as it pleased the father to forge. Forge is an old word. It's an old English word. It's a word that that means you are forming by heat and hammer. Forming by heat and and hammer. So as that steel is being burned, it is being hammered. You are being forged. So just as it forged, or just as it pleased the Father to forge the sanctified humanity of His Son in the crucible of affliction, so it is with those who claim the name of Christ. What does the book of Hebrews say? Although He was a son, He learned obedience through what He suffered. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, by virtue of their union with him, that they too, we too, in order to be conformed to him, we too will find ourselves forged in the crucible. Crucible is a a melting pot. Forged in the crucible of affliction and suffering. What is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the significance that she has in this world? Think about it. What do we, what is our place here? What is our purpose here? Who are we here on this earth? If we are to meaningfully understand the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
We need to understand that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a colony or a community, if you will, of heaven on earth. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a colony or a community. I like the word community better. Of heaven. On earth. And in the midst of this community, we live in a fallen world. As slave friends of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are surrounded by a fallen world who are haters of God. And as his slave friends... Christ has entrusted to us, his disciples, a message to proclaim to that world that surrounds us. That message is the gospel. Second Corinthians 518. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we, as ambassadors for Christ, God is making his appeal through us. And here's the appeal. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We say to the unbelieving world, be reconciled to God. We have been entrusted with this message to that world that surrounds us. Be reconciled to God. God, our holy, perfect creator, made us to love him, to worship him, to enjoy him. And yet we failed to obey God. We rebelled against a holy God, thus causing all of humanity that would ever be born to be infected with the sin With a disease of sin. We are infected. We were born infected. Man was unwilling, unable to come to God on his own. Man naturally hates God and wants nothing to do with God. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life of obedience to the law of God. And Jesus offered up his life as a sacrificial substitute. For sinners, for enemies, and brothers and sisters, he rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. He rose from the dead. He displayed the power of God by rising from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave. And he makes his appeal this morning through me. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ and be saved this morning. This is the gospel, beloved. This is the good news that we hold out to the world. And the gospel has wonderful, unimaginable dimensions. And if we have, and we have been entrusted with this message by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, we have been given this message. We've been entrusted with this message. So we in this community, in this colony of heaven on earth, We hold out to the world that surrounds us a message of pardon, a message of peace. We hold out to this world a message of love and reconciliation to God. We hold out that message to them. The message that we have been entrusted by Christ to give. And you may say, that sounds wonderful. It sounds beautiful. Oh, and it is. 
But there is a harsh reality to that fact. The harsh reality to the good news is this, that it happens to be, and it happens to be one of the reasons why many so-called believers refuse to share their faith. The harsh reality is this, that as we hold out our, with our hands, the gospel, the message of Christ to proclaim, it is being held out to a fallen world that is so readily and quickly Rejecting that message and biting the hand, burning the hands that that handed out. The gospel message that we have been entrusted with to give to the world is a message that the world, because of their depravity and their hostility to God, will often resist. So what should we expect as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? What kind of life should we expect as we endeavor to follow after the one who has so captured our hearts? I have just two points for you this morning. And I pray, God, please, that you will gain some insight into how we are to live in spite of a world that will quickly reject the gospel message that we offer them. Point number one. And I'm going to group a number of passages together in order to make the point. Jesus, number one, impresses the the inevitable fact of suffering on his disciples. Jesus impresses the inevitable fact of suffering on his disciples. Verse 20. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me. They will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. Chapter 16, verse 1. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away in verse 4 of that same chapter. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the dark reality lying behind the words of the Lord Jesus Christ because of their union with Christ and because of our union with Christ. We share in the life of Christ. We share in the death of Christ and we also share in the rejection of Christ. In this chapter, John seems to to be striking a note. That was first struck in the very first chapter of the Gospel of John. And that is this. He came to his own. And his own did not receive him. Right from the beginning. John is picking up this theme of light and darkness. Of truth and hostility. To the revelation of God. In Jesus Christ. In a sense. What John is saying. Through this Gospel. And what Jesus is saying. To his disciples is this, and listen closely, what John is saying throughout this gospel, and what Jesus is saying to his disciples at this particular moment, is this is as good as it gets on this side of glory. This is as good as it gets on this side of glory. Now, breaks may be going off in your mind and in your heart. Wait a minute. What do you mean this is as good as it gets? What about the abundant life? 
What about I will never leave you or forsake you? What about we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus? And your brothers and sisters, all of those truths are indeed true. All of those truths are lived, though, in tension with the reality that we are a community that dwells in the midst of a fallen, Christ-rejecting, God-hating world. Paul, seeking to encourage believers after he himself had been stoned, said in Acts 14.22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Can you imagine being stoned? And when they stoned you, they stoned you until they thought you were dead. And then a hand moving from the rubble of stones. And fellow believers coming to see if he was still alive. And the thing that he says to them as they remove rocks from him and and wipe blood maybe from his face and head is this. Through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is seeking to give a true sense of reality to his disciples about calling, about the calling that he has called them to. He has chosen them. He has purposely selected them to be his foundational ambassadors in this world. And one of the undeniable realities of that calling is that of unrelenting persecution. If you have been called to be an ambassador of Christ and you are also called to expect and endure unrelenting persecution because you name the name of Christ. He is forewarning them of the persecutions that will come on account of his name. He's forewarning them and he is now forewarning you of the persecutions that will come because of his name. At the beginning of his ministry and now at the end of his ministry, Jesus has warned those who would follow him of the persecutions that would come. The persecutions that are inescapable because of belonging to him. Matthew 10, 5.10 Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. On my account. There are those who are sitting here this morning and say, yes, there are those who are talking about me at work, but they're not talking about you on account of Christ. They're talking about you on account of you. Christ says, expect persecution because of him. He told them from the very beginning, suffering, persecution and rejection are your lot if you follow me. And now at the end, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Notice in this chapter, after Judas leaves, Jesus does not begin teaching about union with them, with himself, by starting with suffering. He does not begin as Judas leaves and says, okay, now let me tell you, you're all going to suffer. Rather, he is a gentle shepherd. And he begins his union with them, or begins describing his union with them in the verse, first 17 verses. He opens up to him, to them, the great joy that is found in being united in Christ. He is the true vine. We are the branches. How comforting. How encouraging. How gentle and how loving is our great shepherd. 
in this life that we live, he lives with us. We are brought into the closest conceivable union with Christ. He is the vine. We are the branches. And that would do nothing but cause us to draw nearer to him and say, yes, Lord. And as we draw nearer to him, we understand that we have union with him, that we live in our flesh, but by the spirit. And it's a blessing to have such a privilege. We have been brought into a personal saving communion with our God through Christ Jesus. This is where he begins our discussion or his discussion with union with him. He begins there. We are so close. We are united. We have closest conceivable union with each other. And then yet he turns. Now he turns to another implication of being united to him. If the world hates you, know that it also first hated me. Jesus is, again, forewarning his disciples. John 16, 1, I have said these things to keep you from falling away. He knows that they will stand, but they need to know that they need to stand. He knows that they will stand, but they need to know that they will suffer all these things and they should not be shocked when they do. Because he has already told them that they will. Because of their union with Christ. He has foreseen it. He has foretold. And one of the things that we desperately need to come to grips with in our lives is this. That we too will experience trials. That we too will experience difficulties and troubles in our lives. Don't be surprised when they come. Peter said to those who are experiencing fiery trials. Don't be surprised. At the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. Do you hear that? Don't be surprised. Expect trials. Expect suffering. The problem is we expect the opposite. Because we have been fooled into thinking that we should only expect blessings, health, wealth. And all good things to come to our life. But this is a sin-sick world that you live in. So when someone dies, don't be surprised. Because people die in this world. It should cause you to look to another world in which people do not die. When people get sick and have cancer, don't be surprised. If I get cancer or if I get sick, don't be surprised. It's not because I am a sinner. It's because this is a sin-sick world and we are all The result of what has happened to Adam, or we are all the result of Adam and Eve. Don't be surprised. It happens. This is a sin-sick world. Don't be surprised when you lose your job. Don't be surprised when you get a flat tire. These things happen in life. But look forward to a life. In which none of these things will be present. Where there will be no tear. Where there will be no darkness. Where there will only be joy and peace in the Son of God who loved us. But in this world, expect suffering. In this world, expect trials. And when they come, say, as Jesus encouraged his disciples to say, This is exactly what my master told me I should expect is my lot in this world. Why am I surprised? And brothers and sisters, 
that is in reference to a world's hostility to Christ and the gospel. Meaning, when you share the gospel, expect persecution. Amen. When you share and live the gospel, expect persecution. When you get sick, you're just experiencing whatever human being experiences. We all get sick and die. I have some good news for you, or at least some news for you that maybe you don't know. You're dying right now. You're living and in the process of dying. So don't be surprised when you die. But look forward to the fact that death in this world has not had the final word. Amen. I pray every day for the protection of my family and for the protection of you, the church. But I must be honest with you. Danger surrounds us in this world and we are not promised to be immune from danger that comes our way. When it comes, then it will. We must not look to God and be angry with him. I heard R.C. Sproul say we never have a justifiable reason to be angry with God. And I say in union with him. Amen. I think about all of us. And we start to think about, well, if I'm saved, then God should protect me from these things. You must think about who you are and who you were. And that you have been given the only thing that anybody should ever value in this life. And that is salvation. Let me be careful how I say that. Obviously, we value our families. Obviously, we value sharing the gospel. But to look to God and be angry because he has allowed certain things to come our way is to forget who you are in light of God. He is the holy, only holy, righteous one. He is the only one that deserves any praise, any good. We deserve nothing. And the fact that he has given us salvation is enough for us to say, God, that's enough. Amen. So let us be careful when we want to point our finger at God and say with a shaking fist, I'm angry at you. I think our problem is that we believe in a doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And that we believe that because he is sovereign, he is is control over all things. So when trials come, we have the tendency to ask, God, why me? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? And I will answer for you the answer that was graciously given to my dad. Why not you? Do you somehow deserve something better than everybody else? Are you somehow greater Than everyone else? No. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. When Jesus says the world will hate you, if the world hates you, it is better rendered since the world hates you. Since the world hates you. And he is not hiding the cost. He is warning them of the cost. It is almost as if he is asking them, are you sure you want to follow me? Are you sure you want to follow me? 
And it would almost come to the point where you would think that Jesus, you would ask Jesus, do you really want anyone to follow you? Because anytime someone comes to him, he almost seems to discourage them. A scribe came up to him in Matthew chapter 8 and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You would think that Jesus would say, wonderful, join the crowd, get in line and follow along. But that's not what he says. In fact, he says the opposite. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of God, or Son of Man, has nowhere to lay his head. His response to this man, you want to follow me? Are you ready to be homeless? I can't even offer you a bed. The New Testament offers suffering as something that is inescapable in the life of faith. Romans 8, 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided. We suffer with him. In order that we may also be glorified with him. Meaning this. No cross. No Christ. Meaning this, you want glory, but you don't want a cross. No cross, no Christ. Suffering is woven into the fabric of the believing life. And why? Because suffering is the pattern of the prototype. Christ, the original, it is the Savior's way to glory. And if it was the Savior's way to glory, then it is our way to glory. The cross. No cross, no Christ. Paul, writing to the church of Philippians, or to the church of Philippi, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. It has been granted. You have been given the privilege. Do you see suffering as a privilege? Do you realize that when Christ has allowed you to suffer, he is counting you worthy of suffering like him? Do we see suffering in that light, though? Do we see it through that lens that when we are, are allowed to suffer, God has counted us worthy of suffering? He is giving us a privilege to suffer as Christ suffered. And who then would, would, would turn away from a cross and say, no, not me? That is why Paul, Peter, James, John, that is why they all embraced whatever suffering came their way. Because God counted them worthy of the suffering. And we run from it. We cry because of it. No. There were those in the early church who were looking to be killed. Looking to be killed. Almost as if they were in the game of hide and seek. Looking to be caught so that they could be martyred. It is a privilege. It is a privilege. Do you see the prospects of suffering for Christ as a privilege? The persecutions that we hear from across the waters may one day reach the shores of this great nation. And then what will you do? We know that suffering takes many forms. It can be physical, emotional, psychological. 
The writer of Hebrews explains some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. We may be removed from those actions that were just described. Listen. But, beloved, we are not removed from the fuel that sparked the engine of persecution. And that fuel is the gospel. We may be removed from those actions, but we are not removed from the fuel that sparked the engine of persecution. That is the gospel. Jesus is inviting his disciples to reconsider the cost. I sit here this or I stand here this morning and I look to all of you and I am inviting you to reconsider the cost. Are you sure? Are you sure? Listen to this. When Muslims, converted Muslims are baptized in the East, they are asked many questions. They are asked actually many of the same questions that I asked those who were baptized at our members meeting, except one question that I did not ask. And that I will ask from now on. And here's the question that they ask converted Muslim believers. Are you ready to die? As they are preparing to baptize them. Do you believe that God, that Jesus is God in the flesh? Do you believe in the Trinity? Do you believe? Do you believe? And then one final question. Are you ready to die? Because in that country. That is most likely their fate. What would you say in this country if that question was asked to you before you were baptized? I ask you this morning to reconsider, to reconsider following Christ, to consider the cost of following Christ, to be willing to say without a shadow of a doubt, I am ready to die. If that's what it means, if that's what it takes, I am ready to die. And don't say you're ready to die if you're not even willing to show up to a Wednesday night service. Don't say you're ready to die if you're not even willing to share the gospel with people that you've been around for the past two years. Don't say you're ready to die. Don't give lip service. Be honest with yourself. This is not just I see you Sunday and then see you next week. I'm a Christian on Sunday, then I'm a devil throughout the rest of the week. And then I'm a Christian again on Sunday. No. I'm ready to die. And I die daily. I take up my cross daily. Will you? Are you? Ready to die? Die to what? Prestige? Reputation, power, yeah. All of those, and are you literally ready to die for the name of Christ? Isn't this one of the reasons why the early church made such an impression on the ancient world? Isn't, it wasn't that they were engaged in a holy war like fanatical Muslims. These Christians loved their enemies in spite of the hatred that they received. 
the world that was surrounding them could not understand. They would not call down curses on those who were burning them at the stake. They were not calling down curses on those who were crucifying them and beheading them. Instead, they were praying for them. Like Stephen, when he was being stoned, what did he do? He looked up to God and he says, forgive them. And the world stands in amazement. What is this? What is this? That great reformers would be burned at the state and say, God, open the king of England's eyes. <laughs> Love. Love is our greatest apologetic. And in this world, we should not fret when we are persecuted. The early church flourished in an environment that was far more oppressive and secular than ours. The gospel is still and always will be the power of God unto salvation. And the Holy Spirit has not and will never lose his power. We proclaim Christ and we love those who are even our enemies. While persecutions may be becoming an increasing reality, our calling is to love our enemies. And that will cause them to raise the question, what makes people like that? What makes them like that? That, 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 that they would not fight back, but that they would take it, accept it, and die. What makes them respond that way? If God loved us in such a way, when we were his enemies, then we are to love people that way, even when we, they see us as, our, as their enemies. God loved us when we were his enemies. We love others who would be described as our enemies. We should love them. And this is exactly what Jesus is warning and encouraging his disciples. Because this will be the life that will soon and quickly come upon them. Secondly and finally, Jesus directs his disciples to the source of Christian suffering. The source of Christian suffering. Jesus directs his disciples to the source of Christian suffering. Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it, is, it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And going on, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But they have no excuse for their sins. Whoever hates me hates also my father, my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. One pause real quick. I'm not going to dig any deeper into this. Jesus is not saying that they would not have been guilty of any sin. If he had not come, but rather he is saying they would not have been guilty of the sin of rejecting Christ. If he had not come and now he has come and they have rejected him so they can add that guilt to their already guilty conscience that they find in Adam. Chapter 16, verse two. They will put you out of the synagogues 
Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Now listen close as we close. Six times the Lord Jesus Christ traces the source of suffering and persecution to, listen, the world. Now listen close. If the world hates you, etc. If the world hates you, since the world hates you, etc. What does Jesus mean here by the world? Going back to the prologue. The world. This is in the first chapter. The world. For John, the world is humanity that is in rebellion against God. We know that in John chapter 3, God so loved the world. And we often believe that the point is, see how big God's love is. And that's not really the case. The point of John chapter 3 is not see how big God's love is. It's see how astonishing God's love is. Why astonishing? Because who is the world? They are humanity. We are humanity. That is in rebellion against God. Therefore, see how astonishing God's love is. That he would love rebels. He loves the world. What's astonishing about that? Well, who are the people of the world? Again, the rebels, the enemies. They are those who defy the commandments of God. They were us. Verse 19, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Amen. Becoming a Christian is being rescued from the darkness of this present age and being brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son whom he loved. But notice this, that Jesus becomes far more specific about who the world is in this passage. Now, I need you to look at it and pay attention. You know this passage. We love this passage, not of this world. But have you ever stopped to ponder who in the world is the world? The world that Jesus is speaking of here is this. Listen close. It is the world that has invaded the church. The world that hates you is the world that has invaded the church. I see puzzled faces. He says to them in chapter 16, verse 2. They think that they will be doing a service to God. By putting you to death. Do you get that? They think that they will be doing a service to God by putting you to death. They are the ones who hate you. They are the world. Let me ask you a question. Who are the people who persecuted, hated, and killed Jesus? Was it the Romans? No. It was the religious leaders. It was the Jews. It was those who believed that they were on God's side. It was those who believed that they were the true church of God. Who is the world that Jesus is warning his disciples against? Those that say that they are after God and yet reject his son. Those who say we love God, but we hate his son. And those who say we love God We love his son, but we've created his son in our own image. The greatest enemies of the gospel have always been 
the world that has invaded the church. And they have paraded and standed as if, and stood as if they were for God when they were actually opposing God. Who put Jeremiah down a muddy hole? The religious leaders. Who stoned Stephen? The religious leaders. Who beheaded Paul? The religious leaders. In our day, who has been the greatest opponents to the gospel of free grace in the Lord Jesus Christ? The Roman Catholic Church. In the 20th and 21st century, there have been at least, I won't even say at least, there have been millions who have died at the hands of those who said they were for God. It is a solemn truth to find that the world, the fallen world, could be found in the midst of the church. How could that happen? Could this church be a bigger, more populated church? Of course. Of course it could. And at the same time, it would be a compromising church. Preaching a so-called gospel. And so-called believers would begin to flood this church. How does the world invade the church? When the pulpit doesn't preach the gospel. But preach repentance. Christ, him crucified, the cost of discipleship. And the so-called church will call me and you Pharisees. And want to put you to death. You say that God has an elect people. They want to put you to death because who are you to talk like that? God is love. God loves everyone. And you say, hold on a second. That's not actually what scripture teaches. And those who say they believe in God will want to put you to death. They, they will, their, their mouths will foam with venom when you begin to, to talk about the grace of God and also the wrath of God. Go to the random person on the street who says they believe in God and talk to them about the wrath of God. What's the first thing they're going to say to you? God is a loving God. Oh, they have invaded. And like a chameleon, disguised themselves as one of his own. When they are not. And Christ is warning you against them. The unbelievers who have no belief in God. They just think you're crazy anyways. They don't want to kill you. They don't care about God anyways. It's those who think they believe in God and say they love God who will look at you and say, you are in opposition to God. Put him to death. Shut his mouth. Those are the ones that Christ is warning you about. People like me. He's That the world is going to hate people like me. They would want to put me to death. Put me on CNN, on Fox. Put me even on Fox, on MSNBC, and let me share the gospel. This church will be surrounded the next Sunday with those with signs saying, hater of God, liar, take his license away. I ain't got no license. This is my license. And this is why they hate you. Because they think they know God. 
But they really don't. They want to believe with all their might, listen, that God is just like them. What did he say to the psalmist? You thought I was just like you. I'm nothing like you. And what we have done is we have the the so-called church. Men are bent on attempting to worship God. A God that they have fashioned by their own hands and into their own likeness. A God who they think is just like them. And in essence, they are worshiping themselves. But God is not formed by human hands. God reigns outside of the help of anyone or anything. And what makes us like God? No, God makes us like him. Our union with Christ reveals that those who believe that they are in Christ. And they're not. That your light exposes their darkness and they hate that. That's why they hate you. Because you truly know God and they don't. You are walking in the light and they are not. No church is immune from the invasion of the world. But in closing, do you know what helps to keep the invasion at bay? It is saying humbly and daily, coming to the throne of grace and day by day coming to that throne of God and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When we gather, we come here to confess our helplessness apart from Christ. And may God help us to stand against the invasion of the world and enable us to stand together for the cause of Christ and the gospel. Maybe this is as good as it gets on this side of glory. But to be on the side of the man of sorrows is to make you the most privileged being in all of creation. At least, that is what the beings who surround the throne of God are saying every single day, every single moment. And that is what we say with them. To Him be glory. To Him be praise. Forever and ever, our God reigns. Don't be surprised when it comes. Especially don't be surprised when it comes as you share the gospel. Preach. Let your voice be used as an instrument of righteousness for the declaration of the Lord, the Lord Jesus and his gospel. And accept the persecution when it comes, even if you are strong enough, uh, equipped enough to defend yourself. No, take it. Embrace it. That God has counted you worthy of suffering for the name of his son. Let's stand.